Hi everyone, and welcome to this new series of the Lago Mind podcast. In this first episode, we spoke to James Grimes from the Big Step campaign and Samantha Thomas, a professor of public health, about the impact of gambling on mental health, especially its association with sports. As ever, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi guys, how are you? Very well, thank you. Are you, Harry? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, so to start with, we normally ask what you're kind of, to give a little introduction of, of who you are and, and what you do. Go on, Sam. You want to go first, James? No, you go. Um, so I'm Samantha Thomas. I'm a professor of public health at Deakin University. And the work of our team really looks at a range of different things, but gambling is one of them. And our interest in gambling really is around um, the practices of the gambling industry and the way that that may influence people's attitudes and behaviours. And in particular, over the last few years, we've been interested in, I guess, the pervasiveness and alignment between gambling and sport and the impact that that has on children and young men and young women. Yeah, I'm James Grimes and uh, I'm from the Big Step Project, which is a, a gambling with lives charity project um, who unfortunately were a charity set up by bereaved families of young men predominantly who unfortunately took their own life as a, as a direct result of their gambling addiction. Um, I am a recovering gambling addict, hence why I now work with uh, Gambling With Lives and why I founded the Big Step Project because I lived with an addiction that destroyed pretty much every area of my life and I firmly believe that a lot of the reason for that was the real close relationship between sport, specifically football, and gambling. And uh, I now work um, with people like Sam and Gambling With Lives and others to try and prevent that happening to any anybody else. Would you be happy to talk a bit more about kind of how how your gambling addiction started and, and just to talk about it a bit more? Yeah, sure. So quite probably quite a common story to, to people that have um, had issues with gambling. I I started as a child, um, so I started by placing small casual bets on football. And I used to believe the adverts in this country when it said it matters more when there's money on it. And I used to believe Ray Winston when he said, bet and play now. Um, and I never understood the risks involved. So I, I thought that because uh, gambling advertisement and sponsorship was all over my favourite sport and specifically on my favourite club, um, I trusted it and I, I didn't understand that it could, it could be an addictive um, an addictive activity and started by those small bets and as soon as I was introduced to online gambling and fixed odds betting terminals, it escalated into something that I had no real control over. I couldn't stop when the fun stops. Um, it, it, I lost two jobs. I lost all trust. My family lost all trust in me, I should say. Um, I had severe debt, but it's the thing I look back at with the least regret because the money was an irrelevance during it all. It was the, the detrimental effect it had on my mental health. And more importantly than that, I think how I treated other people and the effect on their mental health and, you know, gambling addiction, gambling disorder. Um, it's an overwhelming condition that takes hold of every area of, of your life. And uh, I'm now just over, just over two years without a bet. Um, and obviously my focus is around, as I said earlier, making sure 
children especially aren't introduced to this like I was from an early age. The, the first thing to say is congratulations, James. Um, and I've just got some stats in front of me here. I think they're from last season, but half of Premier League clubs have a uh, a main shirt sponsor that's a betting company. 17 out of 24 championship clubs. Uh, the championship is sponsored by a betting company. Uh, the Scottish Premier League is sponsored by a betting company. Is it? I suppose, Sam, perhaps you could come come in here. What kind of impact does having all of that betting just around football have? Because I'm, I'm a fairly casual football fan. I listen to football podcasts. I watch football sometimes. And it just seems to be completely pervasive that everything is sponsored by a betting company. You can't... There seems to have been a... You might agree with this, James. There seems to be a notion that you have to bet on football in order to be fully engaged with it and have fun. Yeah, and I I think what you're describing there is this process of normalization where um, I guess over the last decade in particular, we've seen this real creep of... um, gambling promotions and the alignment between gambling and lots of different types of sport, not just football. So um, even now, if we watch, you know, American basketball or um, rugby or rugby league or AFL here in Australia, um, or even the cricket, we see um, that marketing embedded right the way throughout the game. And I think um, that has a range of different impacts, some of which you've described, but um, the most I guess striking one for me is how it creates this perception for people that gambling is a normal and common part of sport and it's something that you do if you're a fan of sport. Um, We call this the gamblification of sport and when I was growing up a lot of that advertising was for tobacco products and then later for alcohol products and now we see it for gambling products and a lot of the work that James and I have been doing really focuses on the way in which that normalizes gambling for children. So children may not be um, the target of those promotions, but in a way they're caught in the crossfire of it. So as the companies compete more and more to make sure that their brands are visible to people, children are soaking in that information. And definitely the research that we've done both in Australia and the UK shows that the majority of our children who are fans of sport now think that gambling is a, a normal or common part of sport. And the question I guess that raises for us is what happens later on when they become adults? Do they just naturally transition into gambling as a socially and culturally accepted activity? Yeah, and just and just to add on to that, it's as, as Sam says, it's not the fact for me, from my own experiences, that when I was 13, 14, seeing these gambling adverts and then immediately running to the bookies and thinking oh, I must place a bet and I was instantly addicted. That's that's obviously not the case. Um, it's it's this long-term exposure and, and normalization. So when I turned 18 and I was legal age to gamble, I used the brands that were blazoned across the shirts of my favorite clubs because I had that trust and I had that loyalty and I had that recognition. So I already had been desensitized to these brands throughout my childhood. Um, and yeah, the, the, as Sam, Sam says, it's, it's, it's about, by law, children should not be seeing gambling advertisements. And and football is a loophole that unfortunately means children are being exposed to gambling across the pitch, 
um, around the stadium, on the shirts, through social media. So unfortunately, we, we are at a point now where we need to end this. And, and the decision is not going to come through football because, as you said, we, the, the figures there, there's not really any improvement. We only have five clubs in the Premier League without a gambling sponsor or gambling partner. Um, so the decision is not going to come from football because football doesn't seem to be listening to the public health concerns. So that's why we've, um, we've, we've started a petition, um, a change.org petition to end gambling ads in football because we think this, this decision will have to come through government um, as part of a review of the Gambling Act. Yeah, so you think that it's kind of, uh, as opposed to the, the clubs taking ownership of this, you think it, it needs to be a much more a public health approach. Can you just kind of explain a bit about what a public health approach means um, and why it's different to to say um, the gambling companies or the football clubs taking ownership of it? So um, I guess what we're looking for in a public health approach are strategies that we can use to prevent harm from these products. And that would be the same if we were talking about gambling or junk food or, or tobacco or alcohol. And when we take a public health approach, one of the things that we're looking at is what is the what we call the key vector of harm. And a lot of us would argue that it's the industry and the practices associated with the industry that, that ultimately create the harms associated with these products. There are obviously other factors, you know, um, socio-cultural factors, um, gambling environments, so the accessibility and availability of different products. Um, but the reason why we talk from a public health perspective about taking or needing government regulation and legislation is because number one we want to create a fair playing field and and government really is the the best placed um, group to be able to do that. Um, secondly, we know from um, research, for example, in tobacco and other areas of public health, that there is very little evidence that um, these industries taking voluntary steps towards change actually make uh, a lot of, actually don't make a lot of difference. Um, we know that regulation um, is very important in terms of moving that forward and really starting to protect the community. It's really important, for example, that that regulation is based on independent evidence from independent researchers um, and really starts to take into account how best to protect communities from the impact of either very, very highly intense products or the marketing that, for example, young people might be exposed to in sporting matches for these products. Yeah, and, and just Sam talks there about voluntary measures, obviously in this country, um, the one um, striking example of that is the whistle-to-whistle ban, uh, which means um, before nine o'clock, you don't see gambling adverts essentially just during halftime because um, six minutes before kickoff, you can be subjected to three uh, gambling adverts off the back, one behind the other. Um, and also, as the former CEO of um, a massive gambling company said, what difference does that voluntary measure make when you're seeing adverts whistling around the side of the pitch and on, and on the front of the shirt? So I think I was probably naive when I first came into this about soft options, um, thinking that voluntary measures like this um, do, do, are effective. But actually, if you accept the, the principle that this is a dangerous activity and should not be promoted, then there's no soft option available. You either accept that and take it off the shirts 
um, or as I said, it has to come through government to, to do that. There was a, a recent report that was put together by the WHO and UNICEF and the Lancet Commission um, that came out earlier this year. And they talk a lot in that report about um, the reports about the future of the world's children. And they talk a lot about the fact that children around the world are enormously exposed to advertising from businesses whose marketing techniques exploit their vulnerability and whose products can ultimately harm their health and well-being. And if we take this as, I, I guess, our benchmark, what we want to be doing is saying, well, okay, you know, the, the first step that any government should be taking is to make sure that children are not exposed to the marketing for these products. Um, we actually had um, some legislation that was introduced here in Australia, which stopped gambling advertising in live sport up to a specific um, time period at night. And we did some research to look at the effectiveness of that because it only regulated those commercial break um, advertising advertising spots. Um, and what we found when we went and talked to kids about um, whether they still saw gambling ads in sport is that they still talked about the advertising that was the hoardings around the ground or the big logos on the basketball court um, or the logos on players' jerseys. But also, um, kids don't generally switch off the television at 8.30 at night, which is when our um, uh, legislation protection uh, measures came up to. Um, and most of them talked about seeing gambling advertising after that watershed. Um, and so again, it just shows that when we think about um, implementing measures to protect children from seeing marketing, we don't just want to be thinking about ads in a certain time period, but all of the different forms of sponsorship and promotion that they might be seeing across multiple different media channels that we have these days. So again, that's why from a public health perspective and learning the lessons from tobacco um, that we would advocate for, you know, some really comprehensive measures to restrict those that, that marketing. Also, because we know that marketing works. You know, it creates, as James said, loyalty towards brands. It um, means that people, you know, download the app for certain products. Um, and so, again, although children are not necessarily the targets of that marketing for, the, for gambling, they are exposed to it. And so we need to be doing more to protect them from that. Yeah, I suppose the companies wouldn't be spending so much money on the marketing if it, if it wasn't working. Um, so you talked a bit about um, about. about tobacco and alcohol sponsorship of sports there what are the how did i think tobacco is a, a particular issue in in something like formula one and how did they kind of go about changing that relationship and and uh I, I i'm not sure if it's completely banned but uh but i suppose banning the sponsorship in 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 that field so um, there's something in tobacco called the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which most countries in the world have signed up to. And um, one of those is to really start to protect children or one of the, the articles in that framework is to protect um, young people from um, marketing and, and um, particularly to protect people from marketing. Um, and so again, most countries in the world now have quite comprehensive bans on tobacco marketing, um, 
both within sport and in other environments as well. Um, I, I guess the thing that we should say is um, obviously gambling is not the same product as tobacco, but I guess the principles are the same in terms of really starting to protect um, young people and others from uh, the, the impact of marketing. Um, I guess um, for gambling, we've still got a little way to go in terms of starting to think that through. Um, but certainly we know with tobacco, for example, that when we had those regulations around advertising, um, as well as a range of other um, mechanisms within the community to denormalize smoking, I guess, and to um, start to address the demand for tobacco products and the supply of tobacco products, um, that we really started to see rates of, of smoking go down. Um, and some would argue that those prevention measures have saved millions of lives across the world. So again, um, if we draw upon some of our historical templates from other areas of public health, Health, like tobacco, really starting to use the things that we knew were successful can actually be really helpful in, in helping us to prevent and reduce gambling related harm. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. And what we see uh, here, especially with football, is a lot of people saying that because football is so dependent, uh, unfortunately, on gambling sponsorship money, that, the, that the clubs would collapse and the sport would collapse. But the same fears were made about Formula One and snooker, and the same fears were made about alcohol sponsorship. And of course, these these sports and these clubs don't collapse. And actually, there's examples now of, of football clubs who have replaced gambling sponsors um, with non-gambling sponsors, and their shirt sales are going up 60%, 50%. So actually, it is possible to have this positive public health vision for football, where football is promoting stuff that actually gives to communities, as opposed to take away from communities like tobacco did. Yeah, are there any are there any really good examples you can you can think of that clubs have been very progressive about their relationship with gambling? Yeah, so we we, we sorry Sam. Um, no, no, you go, James. Thank you. We um we work we have a partnership with Tranmere Rovers uh, Football Club who explicitly rejected gambling sponsorship and explicitly rejected having betting terminals in the ground. Um, but to be honest, that them and Luton Town. Uh, were, were two of the first, but also smaller examples like Lewis FC, who are a non-league club, who actually had gambling with lives on the front of their shirts um, last season. So not, not only did they reject gambling sponsorship uh, money, they're actually promoting a gambling reform charity. And at a higher level, the, the most recent ones are Everton um, and Aston Villa, who, as, as I quoted, th those, shirt, those club shirt sales in recent weeks um, have gone up 60%, 50%. So the difference between the gambling income um, as opposed to more fans buying the shirts, because there are a lot of fans that don't want to be sponsored by a gambling company. This, this is a, an argument that gets lost. Obviously, we have to protect children. Obviously, we have to prevent harm to people struggling with gambling. But everyday people, even people that like a bet, are fed up of this amount of advertising. Football fans don't want to be a walking billboard for gambling brands, and those shirt sale figures prove that. Again, here in Australia, we had a very similar thing, but I think we've probably um, gone a little bit further. So here, the Australian Football League, which some people might know as Aussie Rules, um, which again is our major sport here in the state of Victoria. Um, we've had now um, all of our um, professional football Australian Rules clubs here actually turn their back on gambling sponsorship and have signed... Um, 
a responsible gambling charter with the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation here. Um, and so it's been really fantastic to see that we have no, none of our um, Australian Football League um, and some of our um, soccer teams here um, have actually turned away from gambling sponsorship. Um, that's a fantastic move forward here. Um, and we also have some of our, um, or one of our football clubs here who also now has um, agreed to not have any gambling advertising at their stadium. So um, you can get cultural shifts around this issue. And as James says, um, in our research here, um, and certainly here in Australia, um, most people are highly aware of um, gambling advertising in sport and don't really like it. Our parents really don't like to see gambling advertising in sport. Kids themselves, when we talk to them, um, agree that there shouldn't be gambling advertising in sport. Um, so if you've got eight-year-olds telling you that probably it's not a great idea to have gambling ads running in sport, um, then maybe we, sh we need to start listening more to kids and what they have to say about this issue. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most um, persuasive arguments. Um, so something I forgot to ask you at the start, James, was uh, what did what did your recovery look like what kind of what kind of help did you get um what kind of uh therapies or techniques did you use so i should emphasize that um my recovery it, it didn't start from a nice place it started from probably my lowest ever moment where i lost every single penny i had in the world in 20 minutes on fixed odds betting terminals and uh, i went back to my squalid basement room without Peyton much of a, a pity party picture but um i yeah probably was suicidal i you know i turned my phone off for three days i just sat in that room questioning everything and um i then randomly watched a documentary um of, of a man called tony o'reilly who was an irish postman who gambled 10 million pounds um stole 10 million pounds to gamble but you know it was a positive vision and i started to realize this isn't entirely my fault. This isn't me not just gambling responsibly. This isn't um, me not being able to stop when the fun stops. Actually, a lot of this was down to an industry that wouldn't relent their greed and predatory uh, marketed towards me and allowed me to play addictive products without ever intervening. And that moment of enlightenment um, was enough fuel for my recovery. But I also want to say that some people don't recover. There's 250 to 650 people every year in this country that take their own life as a result of their gambling addiction. So I'm extremely fortunate. I never, I never forget that. In terms of the help I got, I actually got zero. Um, at the time, there was no NHS, independent NHS uh, uh, gambling service in my area. There is now. There's the NHS Northern Gambling Service. There is the NHS clinic in London as well, but that wasn't local to me. Um, I, I just did some practical things. I, I used Gamban, which blocks all gambling software. I self-excluded from all sites and through um, through my local bookmakers. But you know, I just started being honest about uh, what this had done to me, how it changed my brain, how it turned me into a person that I detested. And when you start doing that over and over again, eventually recovery becomes even easier. And six months into my recovery, I founded the Big Step. And that's given me not just a focus and a purpose, but it's given me the, the idea that I never want to give another penny 
to that industry and, and that's such a powerful tool for my recovery that's really good um and we'll come on to the the, the big step and the work that, that you're doing there in just a sec but i can't remember the exact figure but i read that um a certain amount of the big uh, uk gambling companies have to or volunteer to give a certain percentage of their profits to to help people recover is that do you think that's a sustainable way of doing things and that well do you think they should be funding that or do you think they should be funding that more or yeah do you think it's an, an appropriate way to to deal with things so i think at the moment the the issue with that is that that contribution is largely voluntary. And um, again, uh, one of the arguments that's been made in the UK is that there needs to be a statutory levy. Um, and what that means is that there's a, a mandated or regulated amount of uh, or percentage that um, comes from the gambling industry and goes uh, to an independent organisation who can then use that to um, fund prevention activities, research and treatment. And I think that that's a really, really important part of the public health approach in the UK, that actually it's not up to um, gambling industries to make voluntary contributions, for example, um, but actually that there is a mandated amount of money that goes to an independent organisation that doesn't have links or ties to the gambling industry. So kind of like we used to do again with our tobacco um, organisations. So here in Australia, we have the Cancer Council, for example, that uh, does a lot of that great work, um, but also can make informed evidence-based decisions about where that money goes, where it's most needed, um, but also can commission the right sort of research that um, can actually inform policy and practice moving forward. So I think for me, from a UK perspective, to have a statutory-based levy is a really, really important part of the overall prevention model that's needed in the UK moving forward. Um, we can't leave this up to industry to decide how much they'll give and to who. And so, um, again, that statutory level is also just part of that levelling of the playing field, um, making sure that we commission um, independent services, independent research and really good evidence-based sustained prevention activities, which would include things like um, uh, evidence-based um, public messaging and social marketing campaigns as well to warn people of the some of the risks associated with gambling and gambling products and james the the big step what are you looking to do you mentioned that petition um i read about the the walk you're doing between the the football grounds in the midlands um just give us i suppose an overview of, of what you want to achieve what you've achieved so far um all the positive stuff. Yeah, so initially it was just a fundraising walk for Gambling With Lives where we walked to football clubs with gambling base shirt sponsors or partners and um, as time's gone on, realised there's actually an appetite to turn this into a full-time campaign and education project. And um, at the end of this month, September, we, we're walking 130 miles across uh, seven Midlands-based football clubs that have gambling sponsors or partners. So to promote this petition I mentioned earlier, which is to try and end gambling, advertising, sponsorship and promotion in football. Um, and yeah, we're, we're really excited because this time um, 
and unlike the other two events that we've done, uh, in February we handed a signed letter to Downing Street asking for the government to, to end this. Um, but this time we've got at least 10 people affected by gambling-related harm or experts by experience with gambling-related harm joining us on the walk. And I think it's such a it's such a powerful message to both football and to government that, look, there's a group of us here that have um, uh, overcome representing those didn't overcome it, the, the boys and the girls from Gambling With Lives. And we, we're here together um, as a community to, to say that this can't go on much longer. This is, we've, we're, we're increasingly set saying these messages as that's why we need to come together to have that powerful voice as one. So yeah, it's gonna be really exciting. 130 miles is the longest we've walked so far. And obviously the big caveat to all this is COVID. Um, so we're going to have to do it socially distant, which over 130 miles is going to be interesting to say the least. But yeah, really looking forward to it. And I have to say that from from our perspective here in Australia, um, it's um, incredibly inspiring to see the the, the advocacy um, and the awareness raising that's being done in the UK by people who have been directly impacted by gambling-related harm. Um, it's been a, a, a real um, asset, I think, in terms of getting gambling reform, whether that's been on fixed odds betting terminals or now starting to look at online gambling and gambling advertising and in the UK really the the people who have been impacted by gambling related harm are starting to make such a clear case for reform. Um, we know that the gambling act is up for review um, shortly in the UK and those personal lived experiences are a really important part of, of starting to rethink um, how we um, approach gambling in the UK. Um, so it, it, it's a fantastic initiative and um, I really hope that lots of people get involved and, and follow the work that the Big Step are doing. And Sam, you're getting involved. We are. So we're doing a virtual um, walk here in Australia. So um, we've got people from a number of different countries, I, I think, now joining in. Um, you can follow along or join us on the walk, uh, which you can uh, go onto Twitter and use the hashtag The Big Step Global. And really what we're trying to do with that is to highlight that this now is a global issue. These are multinational companies and this is now an issue that's starting to affect young people all over the world. So if you want to walk along with us in solidarity with James and um, the other people who have been impacted by gambling-related harm in their families, um, then you can um, download a step, a step app and uh, really start to walk along with us and start to raise awareness and use that hashtag, the Big Step Global, on Twitter. And we're hoping as well that we'll have a group in Scotland that might be doing it and then another country in Europe as well. So it genuinely will be. A global big step which is pretty amazing considering it started from just me and my mates in Manchester so and we're only just beginning. It's something we always kind of end by asking is uh, is how, how the guests look after their own mental health so if, if you could um, take it in turns to, to explain that. Go on Sam. Um, 
well, for me in Victoria at the moment, we're uh, still under lockdown. I feel like we've been locked in lockdown for the whole of the year because of COVID, but we are allowed one hour of exercise out a day. And actually, I was just saying to James yesterday that um, getting out and doing the walk with the big, big step has been um, phenomenal for my mental health. So um, just for me, it's at the moment getting out for that hour a day with my two Labradors um, and, um, you know, really starting to um, get some fresh air, the sun's starting to shine here in Melbourne as well. Um, and also, I guess for me, um, really um, playing sport with my kids when we're um, when we're allowed to out, out, out and about. <laughs> we don't have this these restrictions, but um, really, uh, I think getting out um, in the fresh air here in, in Melbourne, watching my kids play some sport, but at the moment, definitely joining on the walk with the Big Step has been phenomenal for my mental health over the last few weeks. Glad, glad the big step's been of service to you. And uh, I, <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to agree. Mine, mine is um, going for really long walks. I absolutely love just doing like 15, 20 mile walks, not looking at the phone, and then just get, getting back and seeing how many steps you've done. It's, it's, I don't know, something about it that just like cleared my head. But and ever increasingly, just trying to turn my phone off at 8 p.m. at night, which is especially difficult when you're running a campaign in two weeks that's going to start in two weeks time but um i think it's really important just to have that switch off time um at night so it's i don't always do it but i'm trying to get there brilliant and and where can we find more about the work that that you're doing sam but also the big step um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is um, doc underscore Samantha. Um, you can follow the work that, uh, or the walking that we're doing and some of the work that we're doing through the Big Step Global hashtag on Twitter. Um, otherwise, you can Google Samantha Thomas um, at Deakin University and you'll be able to um, have a look at all of the work that we're doing and the, the media work that we're doing here in Australia. Yeah, and for us, um... Obviously, Big Step is a Gambling With Lives project, so I'd encourage everyone to check out Gambling With Lives. That's gamblingwithlives.org. Um, the Big Step uh, is on Twitter. It's at the underscore Big Step. And the main thing is this petition to end gambling advertising, sponsorship and promotion in football. So if you feel that you want to stand with us or walk with us, probably more actually, um, that the link to that is change.org forward slash end gambling ads in football. Brilliant. I'll share that after we finish thank you so much guys thank you harry thanks harry hi everyone just a quick note to say that although we may find the things we talked about in this episode helpful we're not trained mental health professionals if you're struggling with your mental health please contact your local gp or nhs service or call a charity like mind on 0300 123 3393